This evening I'm going to talk about nirvana, imagination, and creativity. Let's go back to something I mentioned last time. And this is the idea that nirvana is clearly visible, but hard to see. And it's hard to see in two ways, I feel. One is that it's difficult to notice. It's difficult to discern. It's hard to recognize. So when we speak of a nirvanic space, that sounds nice. Maybe we'd all like to live in one. But is that just not an idea? Or does it somehow refer to something we know? Something we feel, something we're aware of, something we're conscious of. And as we continue in this sort of practice, does that non-reactive space become more, more present to us? We get a real feel for it, a real sense of it. The other sense of nirvana being hard to see is that it is difficult to bear. Um, it's not easy to, to cope with it. Because nirvana, as the stopping of reactivity, even momentarily, opens up new possibilities. Possibilities that we might find rather challenging and threatening. So, in some of the discussion we've had about ethics, it's much easier to hold on to a set of moral absolutes, to follow a, a series of well-stated and clear precepts and try to then simply do the right thing according to those absolutes and those precepts and not really worry much more about it at all. If we take a situational approach, um, we're confronted with very difficult choices. In other words, we're challenged to assume a greater moral autonomy, in other words, taking a greater responsibility for how we respond to this particular moral dilemma, the suffering of that particular person, in such a way that we can't say, well, I must behave in this way because that's what the precepts say or that's what the texts say, but because we feel in our heart and in our understanding of the situation that the appropriate response would be this. Yet we might also feel that that appropriate response is very difficult to do. It goes against, perhaps, tradition. It might go against our own other instincts that we have ourselves or the habits and conditioning of our society. It forces us to take risks. It forces us to recognize that we might make things worse. Just as reactivity impedes and arguably distorts the refinement of our ethical judgment, in other words, our likes, our dislikes, our fears, our attachments, our wish to look good in a certain way to others, all of those things can get in the way of making or, or of having a clear space to make that difficult moral choice. And in the same way, I would suggest, reactivity also hinders the creative freedom of the imagination. In other words, when we are locked into our likes and dislikes, um, we have been conditioned to regard certain things as beautiful and certain things as not beautiful. Those habits are actually quite strongly instilled within us and it's, it's very difficult sometimes to go beyond that. The imagination, though, is the capacity we have to imagine being other than what we are now. 
It's the capacity to imagine another kind of person that we could become. And in that sense, it's already linked in with, with ethics. But perhaps it's best illustrated, um, not so much by Buddhist theory, but rather by a reflection on how we relate to the creative arts. And that's very much what I want to look at this evening. What's curious, at least I find it curious, that we do not find in traditional Buddhism any term for imagination or for creativity. Uh, whether it's Pali, Sanskrit, Tibetan, Chinese, there is no such word. And although we might, if we look carefully enough, find we might find a word, some remote term, that could be rendered that way, the point still remains that throughout the history of Buddhist thought and philosophy and ethics and all of these things, no attention has been given to the role that the imagination or creativity might play in our practice of human flourishing, in our practice of aspiring to live a fully human life to become more holy what a human being could become. Now this doesn't mean that in Buddhist cultures there has been no imagination or creativity. There clearly has, I would say, on a rather large scale. And one of the things that has always both struck me and appealed to me very strongly in my encounters with Buddhism and Buddhist cultures is the extraordinary art that has been produced. I remember from a very young age when I was first in the Tibetan communities in India being very deeply moved by the traditional Tibetan architecture and motifs and the tankas and the statues. Uh, these are not just casual objects there for some devotional purpose, they're works of art. And we appreciate them irrespective of what we may know about or like about Buddhism. They transcend Buddhism and achieve the status of something worthy of contemplation as beautiful, as inspiring, as somehow embodying uh, a deep set of values. But Buddhists have never thought about that process. They've never developed what we might call uh, an, uh, a theory of aesthetics. Buddhism has also never developed a social theory either. There are these odd lacunae, these gaps, that somehow give rise to questions, and namely the question, but, but why haven't they thought about that? We may often, it is often the case uh, in Buddhist cultures that art is seen always, not always, but very often, primarily, as subservient to the needs of religion. So a lot of Buddhist art is religious art, as it was in the Christian Middle Ages too. That's the only real opportunity that artists had to, you know, to, 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 to pursue their their artistic vocation, their craft, was in service of the religion. It's only in East Asia, in China, Japan, Korea, that we find the arts being integrated into the actual practice itself. But the Indian-based uh, forms of Buddhism, be they of Southeast Asia, the Theravadin, or be they in Central Asia, with the Tibetans and so on, um, Art basically is not given uh, any real significance. In fact, it's something that the monks and the nuns are quite clearly told to avoid. There is no room in a monastic life for the practice of art. And monks are not allowed to um, 
attend uh, performances of uh, plays or music. Uh, all of these things are to be avoided. And yet there's no distinction made whatsoever between popular entertainment and high culture. No difference is made in this way of looking at the world between um, you know, some sort of romantic comedy sung on a stage uh, for pure entertainment, pretty songs, dancing and so on, and let's say the plays of Shakespeare, Hamlet or Macbeth or Lear or the great works of Schubert and, and Beethoven. From a Buddhist, traditional Buddhist perspective, it's all the same and it's all to be avoided. Before I became a Buddhist monk, I had a strong uh, intention to become a photographer. As soon as I became a Buddhist monk, I had to stop all of that. Another of my fellow monks, a Westerner, um, when we were living in Switzerland, um, discovered that there was a beautiful organ in the local church. And he had been a pianist, and he asked our teacher if he could uh, uh, play the organ in the church. No way. Not allowed. Yet at the same time, I found, or I knew, that what drew me to the Dharma was very often not the teachings so much as the aesthetic, the paintings, the sculptures, the architecture, the literature, even some of the classical Buddhist texts, particularly uh, works like Shantideva's uh, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, is clearly a work of poetry. And I love that work, not only because of its content, but because of the way it was written, because of the author's ability to utilise metaphor and to craft uh, text that had both a great beauty and a great wisdom. And they were not in conflict, as far as I could see. Now, if the path of the Dharma leads to a city which is one of the earliest metaphors we find in the Pali texts. But Gautama describes or compares himself to a person who's gone into a forest, has come across an ancient path and has followed that ancient path and has led to the ruins of an ancient city. And then he goes, he leaves the forest and he goes to the king and says let's rebuild that city and the king and the ministers then get together what's needed to rebuild that city and the Buddha explains this parable as his having discovered the Noble Eightfold Path that Tony spoke about last night and what the Noble Eightfold Path leads to is a city a culture a civilization. It doesn't lead to nirvana, and the end of suffering, which is the orthodox Buddhist view. In this parable, which I would suspect is very early, it leads to a whole civilization, a world, a civic space in which human beings can live in safety and focus on activities that are specific to their own flourishing. There's a greater division of labour possible in a civic space than there would be in a rural space. So if the path of the Dharma, if the Eightfold Path is a way of life that leads to the flourishing of a human person and to the flourishing of a new way of living together in a society, in a culture, in a civilization. It would appear to me that a key element of that process would be imagination and creativity. This has led me to uh, inquire 
and to question where we might find vestiges of teachings on the imagination and creativity within the early texts. If the Dharma is about flourishing as a human person, if the Eightfold Path is to encompass the whole of our humanity, where might we find at least a hint of where the imagination might be present? My feeling is that there are, in fact, uh, ideas in early teachings that are addressing the imagination. And the first one I'd like to look at is called the Idis. The, the, the Idis. Idis is usually translated as magical power. And this is a text, this is Samyutta Nikaya 51.2. Those who have neglected the four bases for magical power have neglected the noble path leading to the complete destruction of suffering. So there's an acknowledgement that without the four bases for magical power, you're not going to be able to fulfill the Eightfold Path. But when we look at these powers, they will strike us really as just being magic. Let me read them out. And this is a passage that if you've read the Buddhist, uh, early Buddhist scriptures, you'll be familiar with. With his mind concentrated, purified and integrated, the monk directs his, directs his attention to the modes of magical power. He wields manifold magical powers. Having become one, having become one, he becomes many. Having become many, he becomes one. He appears, he vanishes. He goes unimpeded through walls, ramparts and mountains, as if through space. He dives in and out of the earth as if it were water. He walks on water without sinking as if it were dry land. Sitting cross-legged, he flies through the air like a winged bird. With his hands, he touches and strokes even the sun and the moon. Now, all Buddhist traditions are fully aware of these idis, these magical powers. Uh, but it's become a very pro problematic claim. Everyone believes in them, but no one appears to be capable of demonstrating them. <laughs> even though they are not even considered to be very important attainments or particularly difficult. As you and I know, walking through walls is a piece of cake. It's not. Buddhism has become lumbered with this uh, doctrine and this belief and most Buddhist societies that I've lived in um, are actually rather keen on claiming that this great lama, this great monk, whatever, um, was in a forest and he had this vision and he flew in the sky. Buddhist tradition is full of these stories. And these stories are meant to somehow give authority to the lamas and monks involved and somehow to show how spiritually advanced they are compared to us. They can do all this magic. Of course, Christianity has this same thing too. Uh, it's not uh, unusual. But this gives rise to another problem. And that is that in other passages, in the same disc discourses, Gautama rejects them as being of no value. And, for example, he's once asked about miracles. And he says, well, there are three kinds of miracle. Those of the magical powers, the idis, such as flying, multiplying one's body, walking on water telepathy, and, and sorry, walking on water, etc. The second kind of miracle is telepathy, the capacity to read other people's minds. And the third kind of miracle is called instruction, 
So, but then, so then he continues and says that seeing the danger of such miracles, in other words, flying, multiplying your body, and all of that stuff, I dislike, reject, and despise them. He doesn't say they don't exist. He says, I have no time for that at all. The only miracle of which Gautama approves is the miracle of instruction. And this is how he defines that. He says, um, instruction consists in saying, consider it in this way. Don't consider it in that way. Direct your mind this way. Maybe don't go that way. Give up this, gain this, persevere in this. In other words, these are words, articulate sounds, that can lead a person to change the way in which they live. That is the miracle. And for Gautama, that's the only real miracle. That words and instruction, sentences, language, can lead people to transform how they live and how they experience the world. Because the Idis are nonetheless spoken of consistently in the early texts, I feel that they probably are referring to something significant. They're not just about magical powers. And as a clue to what they might actually mean, um, I found in another passage in the Samanya Palasutta, the discourse on... <coughs> the homeless life, which is in the Diganikaya, a, a metaphor that explains how these magical powers work. And this is what the text says. It says, just as a skilled potter could craft from clay whatever kind of vessel he likes, or a skilled ivory carver could craft from ivory any kind of ivory work he likes, or as a skilled goldsmith could craft from gold any kind of gold article he likes. In the same way, his mind concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, the monk directs, inclines it towards the magical powers, and then he lists them again. The metaphor, however, seems to be pointing at something else. The metaphor is once again, looking at the skill of the artisan, the Buddha is constantly admiring how artisans and artists work. He's very impressed with their know-how of their skills. Many, many passages give rise to that. And here too we find a potter, an ivory worker, and a goldsmith. And what is magical, if you wish, about these artisans is that they're able to take a hunk of clay or an, a tusk of an elephant or a, block, a lump of gold and transform it into something else. In other words, to take a raw material and through your imagination transform it into an object of beauty, of utility, of value. So the idea of the idis, of the magical powers, has less to do with you know, walking through walls and so on, but it has to do with our capacity to, to take a raw material and imagine it as something else, and then using one's skill as a craftsperson to actually achieve that final result. I think also we can see this same skill in the narrator of a story or a tale. Um, a person would come into a village in these early cultures in which the Buddha would have lived and just through his or her ability to uh, tell a story. He's able, through not only the words, but also his ability to use these words skillfully, to evoke a whole world, to bring a whole reality into being 
characters, magical events, stories, distant countries, all kinds of things are brought into being through the skillful use of words. I think one of the problems for us today in understanding this is because we are so familiar with uh, art and writing and all the media that are currently available to us that we're no longer surprised. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't really impress us particularly unless it's the latest CGI uh, computer stuff that they're using in these action movies. And then we're really impressed. You know, all the spaceships flying through the sky and so on. But try and remember, try and imagine the response of the first people who saw those um, prehistoric cave paintings. Uh, those marks on the cave wall that, particularly in the flickering light of a handheld torch of flame, would almost give the impression that these animals were alive. There must have been times when people had literally never seen or heard anything like that. Marks on a wall, just if you've seen these beautiful works of art, many of which are in France, not far from where we live, just very simple lines, but total command of the line. The ability to evoke a mammoth or a bison or a deer, is extraordinary. There's a magic to that. There's a power to that. As I was um, working on this inquiry, I was reading a novel by the Hungarian novelist uh, Sandor Marai called Casanova in Bolzano. It doesn't really matter. It, it's, it's a very lovely little novel, little known. But what often happens when I'm thinking about stuff or preparing talks, actually, is that suddenly in a book I'm reading of a completely different nature, I get the example I need. And as I was reading Marai's book, he said, this is quoted from the novel, an artist is the man who can engrave an entire battle scene on a tiny piece of stone or paint a crowded city full of people, dogs and spires on a slip of ivory. Because an artist, and only an artist, can shatter the laws of time and space. All of this makes me think that the idies are really talking about artistic creativity. They're not talking about magical powers of walking through walls. When I introduced this, I mentioned that in the early text, they talk of four bases of creativity. And these are desire, chanda, energy, virya, heart or soul, chitta, and experimentation. Vimamza. Now, in most translations, it won't say experimentation, it'll say investigation. There's a tendency in the translations of these texts to emphasize the cognitive dimension of any of these practices. But when you look up the word Vimamza in the dictionary, it gives experimentation, trying things out, as one of its meanings. And it seems to me that this is how an artist or an artisan works. First, there must be the desire to create a work. There then has to be the applications of one's energy to achieve the creation of that work. In order to imagine and to visualize and be guided in one's work, one needs the intuitions of the heart, not the intellect, the chitta. The soul, I think, is a perfectly good translation of that. And the way in which the artist or the artisan accomplishes the task is through experimentation. In other words, they keep on working 
reworking, reworking, as we know from the biographies of writers, artists throughout the world, is that their practice is basically one of continuous, ongoing experimentation. This endless quest to achieve the poem, the painting, the sculpture, or whatever it is that you are seeking to realize. So here we have, again, I think, um, an early text, an early idea, these four bases of magical power, which I'll now think of as the four bases for creativity, which, of course, are aspects of our lives, our desires, our energies, our heart, our soul, our intuitions, and our capacity to experiment. That now becomes part of the practice of the Dharma. Not to become a magician, but to become an artist. And I think we can understand this both literally, as working towards producing works of art, or metaphorically, to think of our own life as the raw material for our art. That our bodies, our feelings, our perceptions, our inclinations, our consciousness could be understood as materials that can be transformed into the kind of being we aspire to become. In other words, our practice is more akin to the work of an artist or an artisan than it is to, say, a technician. Somebody who uses meditative techniques to get rid of ignorance, get rid of this, cultivate wisdom, and then, bingo, you're enlightened. So, the idis, I think, means simply creativity. The second um, clue that these ideas are actually already there in the teachings of Gautama is the second step of the Eightfold Path. Now, Tony presented that yesterday very much in the classical way, as, as about renunciation, giving up ill will, uh, what's the other one? Third one? And, and, and the practice of non-harming. Very good moral principles. Renunciation, of course, does make us think of the monks. It suggests that this is a a way of presenting this idea to renunciants, to monastics. But usually this is translated as right thought or right intention, almost invariably. It's either right thought or right intention. But there's a problem there, because there are two perfectly good words in Pali and Sanskrit for thought and intention. Thought is vitaka, intention is chetana, terms the Buddha uses all the time, but not here. Here he uses another word, sankapa. Sankapa. My sense is that the, the terms in which the Eightfold Path are identified, vision, sankapa, and so on, are probably very early. That's my hunch. They go back to an early source. What, therefore, does Sankapa mean? If it doesn't mean thought and it doesn't mean intention. Again, go back to the dictionary. The word Sankapa, Sun is, is an intensifying particle. It means, it, it basically just intensifies. It sometimes means co, as in co-arising and so on, but let's say it's just an intensifier. Kapiti is the verb of kappa, kapiti. And this is what the dictionary gives us for kapiti. To cause, to fit, to create, to build, to construct, to arrange, to prepare, to order. Nothing about thought, nothing about intention at all. And yet, many words that have to do 
with the kinds of things an artist or an artisan would do. Or, perhaps even more tellingly, what you would need to do if you wanted to rebuild a city. To cause to fit, create, build, construct, arrange. This is, to me, quite a different concept to simply um, having a moral thought not to cause harm, or to refrain from ill will, or to renounce negativity. This seems to be pointing to something quite explicitly positive, and it has to do with building and constructing. So if the idi, the magical powers, are really just a way of talking about creativity, we could argue, I would argue, that Sankapa is a way of talking about the imagination. Remember that Sankapa arises from the first step of the path, which is Samaditi, complete vision. And that vision, as we saw yesterday in Tony's talk, means being grounded in an awareness of the, of the transience and the contingency of experience itself, the fluidity, the unpin-down ability of life itself. And from that vision in which you've let go of your fixed opinions, of your beliefs, of your obsessions, you open up to the capacity to imagine the world and to imagine yourself differently. That, I feel, is what Sankapa is all about. This ties, I think, quite neatly into the whole idea of the Eightfold Path as something that is to be cultivated. The fourth task is to cultivate the path, to cultivate the middle way. And the word cultivate, bhavana, in Sanskrit and Pali, literally means to bring into being, to bring into being, to allow into being. Bhava means existence or being. Bhavana, the verb form, to bring into being. Another way of saying that is to create. An artist creates a work of art and in doing so brings the work of art into being. It started out as an idea, as an intuition, and through the skills, through the energy, through the desire, through experimentation, it's brought into being as something that exists in the world. And this is a feature of all eight aspects of the path. The path itself, the middle way, is also to be brought into being. It's not something that just lies out ahead of you along which you take a stroll. The path is something that you are called upon to create and to sustain and to evolve moment to moment. I'd like to also now draw upon some examples of how we understand creativity and the imagination from our own cultural sources, not from Buddhism or from anything in the East. I don't know if any of you have been to the Picasso Museum in Paris, but what you see there is a wonderful collection of the paintings of, and sculptures and other works of Picasso from his very early life. The earliest one is a work he did at the age of 14. And you might wonder how on earth a 14-year-old could have done what Picasso did. But the point is you see Picasso starting out at a very young age to have an extraordinary skill in, uh, in, 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 um, in drawing, in painting. Uh, it's just absolutely stunning. And, but then, all of a sudden, he starts doing all this weird stuff. <laughs> um, I remember my mother, when we used to go to museums as a kid, 
she would say, oh, it's such a pity about Picasso, he knew how to draw perfectly well. <laughs> and he produces this stuff. And what that shows, of course, is we have a preconceived idea of what it is to produce art. It's, again, a model, in my mother's case, drawn, no doubt, from her, uh, her upbringing. But what's interesting about Picasso, of course, he can do the standard stuff brilliantly well. But he has to leave that behind in order to find a voice that speaks to the conditions of the 20th century. He realizes that that old academic language doesn't work anymore. And so he breaks with these norms. And he has to resist the urge to go back to what would be much easier for him in order to find his own way of articulating his vision. And we can see this in many, in the history, of, if we follow the, the work of, of artists, or writers, or musicians. At a certain point, they become very accomplished in the traditions in which they are trained, and then, at some moment, they break with that tradition, they go through a period of experimentation, which is often not very interesting, actually, in terms of the work produced, and then at some point, they find their own voice. They find their own way of communicating, which is utterly, distinctively their own. And this, I think, in many ways, is saying something about another aspect of the path that Tony spoke about last night, and that is samavacha, appropriate speech, or right speech. And I feel that right speech is actually about finding your own voice. Um, it's about... I mean, the path itself, the Eightfold Path, is uh, described as a process of entering a stream in which your life become, begins to flow and you become independent of others in the practice. That's the term used. In other words, this is a practice about creating the conditions for becoming more autonomous. Autonomy of speech is another way of saying finding your own voice. I don't think Gautama was interested in his students simply repeating what he said or copying how he behaved. He sought to empower these inhabitants of this future civilization in all aspects of their lives and in ways that allowed each person, each man, each woman to become fully themselves. This is a quote from John Keats. As to the poetical character itself, it is not itself, it has no self, it is everything and nothing, it has no character, it enjoys light and shade, it lives in gusto, be it foul or fair, high or low, rich or poor, it has as much delight in conceiving an Iago, an Iago as an Imogen, in other words, different characters in Shakespeare's plays. What shocks the virtuous philosopher delights the chameleon poet. So again, Keats has tapped into something central to what it means to be creative, what it means to be an artist, particularly a poet or a playwright. His, work, his, his archetype for this is Shakespeare. And he boils down this understanding of imaginative creativity into two words, negative capability. And this is how he defines negative capability. When a person is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, 
doubts without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. Now, we could have given that as a definition of the practice, what is this? <clears throat> to remain in uncertainties, mysteries and doubts without any irritable, irritable at Keats' time meant reactive, an irritable limb was like a knee that didn't react. Without any irritable reaching after facts and reason. Um, and to me, not only is that a very good definition of that Zen practice, what is this? It's also a very good synonym for nirvana. Nirvana is a negative capability. Negative in the sense that it is the ceasing of greed, hatred and delusion. In other words, those things are negated. But that negation opens up a capability to respond to our life situations in ways that are not conditioned by reactivity. Nirvana is brilliantly defined in this term. It is a negative capability. And that is our practice, to cultivate and sustain this negative capability. And this, I think, also, if we think of the imagination and creativity in these terms, and we see that they are, in fact, there, hidden in some of these old Buddhist ideas, we also have to ask, well, what, why, why was imagination and creativity a problem? Why did it not get developed and valued and honoured in Buddhist tradition? Why is there no aesthetic theory? And I think one reason is because imagination and creativity are dangerous. Religious institutions do not want to encourage people to think for themselves. They don't want people to imagine other ways of interpreting the tradition. For to do so will challenge the authority, sorry, will challenge the dogmas and beliefs on which the monks and the priests and the lamas and so on base their authority. So the imagination is a challenge to authority. If that authority is based upon having experienced for oneself the nature of ultimate truth, which, which in Buddhism is a fairly standard claim, then the imagination is threatening to upset that particular apple cart. And finally, I'd like to read a passage from the Turkish writer, Ahmed Altan. He recently, a book of his was recently published called I Will Never See the World Again. Some of you might have read it. It came out earlier this year. Ahmed Altan um, was arrested um, after the attempted coup against Erdogan a couple of years ago, 2016 I think. He had given uh, an interview on television the night before the coup, which was interpreted as an encouragement for people to rise up against the government. He claims that wasn't his intention at all. But anyway, the government arrested him. He was clearly an anti-government figure anyway. This was a good pretext. They arrested him, they tried him, and in the end they sentenced him to life, imprisonment without parole. Hence the title of his book, I Will Never See the World Again. Ahmed Altan is confined to a prison cell somewhere near Istanbul um, with two other men and he will probably be there for the rest of his life. This book was smuggled out of jail amongst the papers that he gave to his lawyers and then translated into English and now published. He describes his arrest, four o'clock in the morning, the bang on the door, the anti-terrorist police 
rush into his apartment, uh, turn it upside down, put him in handcuffs, stick him in the back of a car and drive off. One of the um, policemen, perhaps with a bit of compassion for the prisoner, offers him a cigarette. Altan is a smoker and the policeman offers him a cigarette. And Altan says, no thanks, I only smoke when I'm nervous. <laughs> and this is how he then uh, continues. I'm reading from the book, right after that passage. Who knows where this sentence came from? Nowhere in my mind had I chosen to make such a declaration. It was as if someone inside me, a person whom I could not exactly call I, but who, never but who nevertheless spoke with my voice, through my mouth, and who was therefore part of me. That single sentence, I only smoke when I am nervous, suddenly changed everything. It divided reality into two, like a samurai sword that in a single movement cuts through a silk scarf thrown up into the air. I am writing this in a prison cell, but I am not in prison. I am a writer. I am neither where I am nor where I am not. Samaditi again, you see, but he knows nothing about Buddhism, this guy. I am neither where I am nor where I am not. You can imprison me, but you cannot keep me here, because, like all writers, I have magic. I can pass through your walls with ease. So we'll leave it. We'll leave it there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.